You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney. I'm so excited to hang out with you guys again. And the overarching conversation we're going to have today, we're going to be talking about why messiness, why messiness is like a key ingredient in our walk of faith and spirituality, why messiness is something that we need to learn to embrace. Because it's something that oftentimes within church circles, I feel like we try to push to the wayside. We try to like almost uh, act like we are all like Instagram influencers, right? Only the best picture forward. Look at me. I'm great. Look at what I did here, right? We kind of take that oftentimes when we walk into like religious circles and we act like we're somehow influencers. Look, there's not a bad side on me at all. But, but, and the walk in the real life walk of faith and spirituality, messiness is a key component. And we're going to be delving deeper into that this hour. And if I want to talk about like messiness and dirtiness, especially in regards to faith and spirituality, there's no better thing for us to do than talk about the Christian crazy. But before I get to that, I've got to remind you this, this this, this, if you're a new listener to this show, this broadcast and all other podcasts can be found at www.snarkyfaith.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just look up Snarky Faith. Also, 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 if you want these shows delivered directly to you in your email, go ahead, go to snarkyfaith.com and enter your email address. We'll send them to you free of charge. I don't even do it. MailChimp does things. I don't even want to ask questions. I mean, I think it's like a monkey sweatshop, this MailChimp thing. But again, if I don't ask, it's fine. It's great. <laughs> I joke. But if you also want to be able to connect with us, uh, we have, uh, yes, uh, Snarky Faith. We are on Facebook and we are on Twitter, just like up Snarky Faith. Or, hey, me, your host, Stuart Deloney. If you want to talk to me, reach out to me. You can always reach me at, at questions at snarkyfaith.com. And, and if you have more, if you have more you want to give, We have a snarky hotline, 919-525-1570. You have anything to say? Most likely, it'll show up on the air either way. But I got done all my housekeeping early on. So for those that are longtime listeners, you realize I'm like patting myself on the back right now because I never remember to say any of these kind of things. I'm not really good with house cleaning on the show. I'm a good husband with house cleaning. Show husband, I'm terrible. I'm awful. Don't marry me as a show husband. I don't even know what that is. Sorry. Uh, Our analogy went way too far still. But, but we began by talking about this. We're talking about messy faith, messy spirituality today, and why it's also glorious. But before we get to that, we need to do our section. I almost said it earlier. Actually, I think I did say it earlier, but I'm going to say it again and give it its due. So this is our section in Snarky Faith, where we talk about the insanity of Christianity. 
for educational purposes so we can make fun of them and mock it and realize, hey, what's this have to do with Christianity? I don't know. <laughs> but at least we can mock it. So here you go, the Christian crazy of the week. Lord have mercy. The Lord is my shepherd. He know what I want. So today the show is very packed. So we're going to be moving in a brisk pace as we move through the Christian crazy of the week. So here's how it's going to work. The beginning of this, we're going to work on this. We're going to try to, we're going to work on misogyny, like figuring out if you can spot when it's the woman's fault in Christianity. Why? Stuart, are you a misogynist? No. God, no. I love my wife. I love my daughters. I think women are equal to men, and in most cases, actually better. So no, I'm not a misogynist. But <laughs> are people in Christianity, have we like hard-baked in misogyny, Stuart? Yes, we have. Yes, we have. We really have. <laughs> and it's great when I ask myself questions and answer them. I'm, I'm such a good host and guest at the same time. So you, you know this? You know this? Okay. Hands on your buzzers. I want to try to figure out when is it the woman's fault? Because again, this is me being snarky. If you're not a regular listener of the show, this show is called Snarky Faith. So... Here we go. This first one comes from Jessica, who says, Lately, I've been seeing my husband liking photos of other women on social media and complimenting them on their looks. He's telling them things he wouldn't dare say to a woman in front of me. This has been tearing me apart and makes me feel like I'm not good enough for him. It also makes me feel as if he's cheating on me by doing this. Am I wrong for feeling this way? Am I overreacting? I've been looking for a time to confront him about it, but I just can't seem to find a way to tell him. What do you suggest I do? So in any reasonably human functioning brain of a situation, anyone would say, oh my gosh, this lady's husband's a dirtbag. He's just kind of like an internet fervy dirtbag and even kind of sadder that he just kind of clicks on all these likes and comments on women online so his wife can, well, I don't know. It's, you know, again, dirtbag. And that's really all Pat Robertson say. Hey, guess what? Your husband's an asshole. Next question. Wouldn't that be way easier, more honest, and frankly, the right answer? I suggest the best thing to do is to be so loving he cannot overcome the amount of love you're going to give him. Just be a wonderful wife. And uh, the fact that he's a man and he appreciates beauty is not necessarily a bad thing. No, no, Pat, no, bad evangelist, bad. Off the couch now. Stop being a misogynist little a-hole. So if you're sensing a theme here with Christianity looking for scapegoats to blame people on stuff, well, Rick Wiles has got something for you. In Nazi Germany, the Nazis made the Jews wear marks. They, they put a mark on the Jews to identify the Jews. What we're, what's happening now is the reverse. The mask is the mark that you are part of the Nazis. Yes, wow. And not wearing the mask is an indication that you are resisting the new Nazism. 
Aha! I see where Rick's going here because we're now moving into that area of some of the Christian crazy where hmm, <laughs> it's the place that kind of makes you think. So Rick's telling us Nazi Germany, they made the Jews wear a symbol. And now us wearing masks? Oh my goodness! Oh, the oppressors that are also wearing the symbol are going to make the people wearing the symbol to die. I don't, I, it, it's, so if I wear a mask, I'm going to get killed, but those in charge are also telling us to wear masks, so they're also going to get killed, so, so if you don't wear a mask, you won't kill, but you may get killed by the, by, I, huh, huh, you know, I love it. That is this one of, this is, this is, I just want people to know this. One of the best ways, and if you've noticed this, that a lot of televangelists are like in good shape. Like you're like, wow, look at that guy. Look at him hold his Bible. That's a solid Bible grip. Look at that Bible bicep. <laughs> right? Right? So a great way, a great way within Christianity to be able to exercise, it's almost like jazzercise, but it's really just, it's learning how to do mental gymnastics to overcome issues of logic and reason and science to be able to make an argument that's so asinine that you sound really committed to yourself <laughs> and the mirror. But the rest of your family is going to know that you are batshit crazy. You may be crazy, but with all this exercise, you are going to look fantastic. Nothing will make sense anymore. <laughs> but it's not going to matter because you're going to make tons of friends off the dark web that also don't make sense, right? You're going to talk about things like QAnon and how when you wear a mask, you're about to die because you think you had asthma once, and if you wear this, you're going to get so much carbon monoxide, your brain is going to get taken over by the G5 signals coming through the chemtrails in this air, and oh my gosh, oh, so much. But you know what? You've got so much energy now, you should start a blog. Don't believe me that this is a great new workout? We should listen to Andrew Womack talk about COVID-19. Will he make sense? You know he won't. Is he going to get a good workout? Oh, yes. Watch his core. It's on fire. Did you know if you get tested for the COVID-19 virus, if you've had a flu shot, then you test positive. Nope, that's a lie. If you've had a cold, you test positive. If you've mm -hmm. had the flu, because all of those things are COVID. COVID-19 is the 19th different COVID virus. A cold, the common cold is a COVID virus. Nope. The flu is a COVID virus. Mm -mm. And so anyway, they're saying that this inflates the numbers. Oh, no, it doesn't. So nothing, nothing, dear Andrew said here, made any sense. But it took a lot of work and a lot of words. And you know, you know, he's listened to a lot of people in a lot of forums about a lot of stuff, about a lot of science and about a lot of other stuff that you don't know. But now he knows and he's going to tell you what he knows because essentially, okay. See, here's why conspiracy theories are stupid. 
and the people that spout them are even more stupid. All right, Womack. If you've had, what do you tell us? The cold, the flu, you've ever had a Pepsi, you're going to test positive for COVID. <laughs> okay. First of all, if you've ever had a cold, you've had COVID, you're going to test positive for it. I mean, let's just be like on the most, on the most, on the most, on the most conservative numbers I can pull out of my head. I'm going to assume, because again, I'm not a doctor, nor am I a televangelist, so I'm not required to talk about any of these things. I, I don't have a basis for saying this. You're either a doctor or televangelist. That's how it works. No. Let's assume that eh, roughly 95% of the planet has had a cold. Let's you know, take out babies or maybe people that live in the middle of nowhere or people that are somehow just superhumans. Right? Right. So if that makes sense, you've had co if you've had a cold, you test positive for COVID. So then wouldn't almost everyone test positive for COVID? Oh, this is where I've gone wrong. Every time in Christianity I've done this, I'm sorry, my bad, this is on me, not on you. See, you see, I didn't believe with faith. I need to believe these things that make no sense, that have no idea that's based not on reality, not on science, just something people are pulling out of their rear ends on the internet. That is true faith. So actually, actually are the conspiracy theorists the most faithful of all of us? Because they believe in things that can't be seen or known or don't make any sense? Pretty sure that's not the faith that they were talking about in the Bible. <laughs> that was gullibility? Idiocracy? Oh, that probably makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what? Just going to throw this in here in the middle of the Christian crazy because we're not done yet. But my point here is that I feel like faith has gotten a bad rap. I feel like faith in the hands of the charlatans have told people faith means believe me. Believe whatever I am leading you to believe. It tells you that, yeah, you're an idiot. Just believe me. That's not faith. That's not faith at all. I think faith is also based on something that is real, that is tangible, that you have gone through. Faith isn't just some sort of a superstitious wish. There's so much to it than that, which we'll get to today. But before that, I've got one last choice cut that I'm, I'm going to bring you. None other than... President Trump's spiritual advisor, Paula White. If you are in need of a palate cleanser, this is not it. It's the equivalent of licking a spiritual turd. I don't even really know what that meant. That, 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 I apologize. That, that whole analogy went wrong from the start. But somehow my brain, spiritual turd, Paula White, it somehow made sense. I don't know. It's like one of those Rorschach blot tests. Yes, that's just what came to mind when I saw it. Paula White, Christian turd. I don't know. Let's listen. Ow. It's not okay, even if it's 
culturally acceptable. It's not okay to be addicted to pornography. It's not okay to shack up. I'm starting easy before I get heavier. It's not okay to be a racist. It's not okay to be lawless. I'm going to hit both because it's not one or the other. It's not okay. You want me to just keep on going? Or should I just leave it there and let you fill in the blanks? Ooh, 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 pick me, pick me. I can play this game of judgment too. <laughs> or we start pointing out what we perceive to be people's sins and be able to do that game where we do like, it's like the judgment game. Okay, so let's try this. So in most Christian circles, Paula White, it's not okay to be married three times. Oh, it's okay for you, but it, oh, what about for the President Tr Trump? Okay, mm. let's not talk about marriage. She'll point out everyone else's obvious flaws and sins hmm it's not okay to sleep with a porn star no she talked about porn not that porn star she said porn's bad but apparently since god is chump's chosen one does that mean porn stars are okay oh loophole joking sorry yeah, see, we can play these idiotic games all day long. Yeah, because you know what's not okay? Uh, putting kids in cages. Mm -hmm. See, we can play this game all day. It's easy to sit and poke holes in other people, but yeah, yeah. I'm really glad Paula White has risen to a place where she feels like she can lecture people on morality. <laughs> well, for me to continue on, it would transition from probably being snarky faith to nasty bitch faith. So... <laughs> Either way, either way, talking about people like Paula White tend to make me sick because of the hypocrisy and because of the insanity and because of how none of this has to do with Jesus, right? You hear me say this all the time. We talk about all of this because none of this has to do with Jesus, but somehow it has everything to do with Jesus. Oh, wait, no, it's Jesus that lets us be, that's right. It's Jesus that lets us be a non-profit, but it's Trump that lets us in on the Paycheck Protection Program. Hallelujah, Jesus. I get my cake and eat it too. And also millions of dollars from the government, even though we don't pay taxes. And we don't have to pay these back, even though other businesses did not get to be able to be involved in the Paycheck Protection Program because other organizations like this got in. Hooray, democracy. So here in the show, we love to mention all of those, all those crazies because, because they don't have anything to do with Christianity. Or really, they shouldn't. I mean, they say they do a name alone, but do they? Like, like, Besides driving people away from the teachings of Jesus, do they have much of a purpose in Christianity? All of those, all of those that are so crazy and so out for their own good. And lately, and lately I've been, I've kind of been on a little bit of an inward journey. I've been spending some time, uh, or at least trying to find constructive time here in the midst of work and family and 
COVIDness. Um, I've discovered, rediscovered for me gardening, um, but I've also rediscovered writing as well. And I've been trying to write down a lot of things that are near and, and dear to my heart. Um, and, and kind of in that process, I've really been thinking through a lot of my own story. And it's interesting when, when we kind of take a look back over our, our journeys, our, our stories, the things that kind of have made us who we are. And I've been pondering, like, who have been those people that have walked with me along my, well, along my physical journey, but also amongst my spiritual journey. I've, I've really been thinking through, like, like, my whole part of faith formation, <laughs> uh, uh, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, deconstruction, reconstruction, you know, that process. And, and it's interesting as, as I've been looking through this and, and I'm going to wager that your story isn't too much different than my own story. And the fact that oftentimes that we end up having these, these different people that come into our lives at different points that, that help us where we're at. Now, sometimes those are going to be physical people that you meet. They may be friends. They may be like chance or serendipitous encounters that you have with people. Um, it could just be a conversation you had with a person at the right time. Um, but also it could be a companion in the form of like an author or a writer or, or something that, that gives you what you needed to be fed at that time. And, and it's interesting because I've, I've thought through different like authors that I feel like I've I don't mean this in, in, in an arrogant way to where like, they, were, they were very, very interesting and helpful where I was at at a certain phase. But then you kind of feel like you grow out of it. Um, you kind of move beyond that. But there has been, for me, I, I feel like, especially in the realm of, of authors being kind of like guides um, in my life. I know I've had, I've had physical guides, but, but I want to try to think about like just the timeless words of authors that have kind of walked me through things and, and in a certain sense, been, been spiritual guides just through their own work. I, I think of people like uh, Anne Lamont. I think of like Henry Nouwen, uh, Bonhoeffer, Brennan Manning, people that, that have, that really helped me to understand, not, not simply just what does it mean to, to understand correct theology, but ones that, that help us better to understand what does, what does, what does it look like on the human level? Does it, what does it look like in, in, in praxis? What does it look like to be able to, to walk out? And for those that there probably are very few and far between that listened to this radio show back, uh, years ago, we've been going on here for a while and it's had different kind of iterations as it's changed with different co-hosts. And then, kind of been where we're at for like a steady period of time uh, where it's me and guests that I bring on here. But, but my good friend Ben uh, used to be one of the co-hosts for a season on this show uh, until work changed and life changed and things changed. And, and I loved my time with Ben because Ben is a person, is, is a very, very deep thinker, and he and I like to bounce things off each other. And he is, one of, again, one of those serendipitous people that, that came into my life at a weird time, shouldn't have come into my life, but did and was there, and it continues to be there. So it was one of those people, I think, when I first even moved to, to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, you end up through a weird circumstances of meeting and being like, oh, yeah, hey, I'm an ex-pastor. Oh, you're a pastor that kind of feels like being an ex-pastor? Oh, let's talk. We should be friends. Yeah. And ensuing friendship continues. Um, 
But Ben and I used to have this segment on the show. This has been several years ago, but we had it where they were snarky saints. Uh, we had talked about people like Tolstoy and people that you would not think generally would be normal saints, but people that have that we still thought needed to be celebrated in in the canon of of the spirit the spiritual journey of, of, of really just kind of the. I guess for us it was it were they were the saints that matter deeply to us that we thought we were saints, and as I I, I was kind of like re, just reading off like a litany of people that have impacted me before. Author-wise, like, you know, now and Bonhoeffer, like I said, but someone that, as I was kind of, like, digging back through my stories, came along and and just spoke so much truth to me in times where I needed it was um, was an author, Mike Iaconelli. Now, for those people that might not be in and around youth pastor culture <laughs> from, like, the 90s and 2000s, uh, Mike Iaconelli was a voice of reason and refreshment to those that would be youth pastors, essentially the indentured servants of churches. Um, and Iaconelli was one of those first people that, that I felt like spoke into my messiness and, and spoke truth and grace in, into my messiness and in a way that was still absolutely truthful and, and was able in many ways, for me to be able to, to learn to embrace where I was at. I had been a person for the longest time where I was always kind of like, God, get me to the next thing. Like, I, 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 was, I was not a very present person. I was really just get from A to B. I was a hard worker, a workaholic. I could do all these things. And, and I think that I entered into a period where I was working for a larger church and, and was experiencing an unhealthy work environment and burnout and many other things. And so Yaconelli was just kind of like, I feel like he's kind of like the whiskey in your Rice Krispies in the morning. It ain't milk. It's going to be hard going down, but man, is it good. I really have no idea what that means. But what I'm trying to say is like a jolt, like a jolt of truth into, into something that you didn't really need, realize that you need was jolted. And Iaconelli began to speak towards the, the need for messiness um, and faith. And, and that has been a theme that, that has continued to capture me and has continued to be with me um, through my entire faith journey. And, it, and it's been one of the aspects that has honestly shaped me of realizing that, that the walk of faith, the walk of, of, of going after Jesus in that spiritual journey, it is going to be a messy pursuit. It is not going to be clean. You are not going to always do the right thing. You are not always going to look great. You are not always going to make the right decision. And the path of following after God involves lots of falling and stumbling and getting back up and continuing to go. And, and up until that point, me being just like a, a little just white waspy jerk that was raised in suburbia, I, I just assumed that there was this like perfect holy path, like the Mario Rainbow Road of like Christianity that you just went down this and it was glorious and wonderful, but you had to stay on the path. And if you did, went off the path, you were messed up. And Iaconelli began to open my eyes to, to what, to the God, I guess what I'm trying to say here is to the God that lives in the margins, to the God that lives in the messy places, the God that lives in the places where if you'd been raised in and around churches, you would not want to go looking for God there. 
right? Like if, if we're raised in and around churches, we know that, that we go and find, where do we find God? We find God on Sunday mornings in a church service while we're singing or while we're listening to a pastor. That's why so many Christians are losing their minds right now during COVID, beginning to say, why can't we go and sing? This is tyranny. We can't go and show up and worship. Then God must be dead. Ah! Yeah. Essentially, they just act like somehow that they are vampires being exposed to the sunlight and their faith is withering right in front of them, which it's hilarious because if really you not being able to go to church and worship in the way that you want to in a very expensive sanctuary. Yeah. If that, like you not being able to do that is making your faith wither. <laughs> Read a book on Christian martyrs. <laughs> That'll wake you up in the morning, boy. But I want to lean more in. I want to lean more in because I feel like we began the show with, with a certain brand of messiness. Uh, but that is more of the messiness that I want to be able just to call out and shout out and get rid of. I want to actually embrace embrace a certain amount of healthy messiness. Like I told you, like lately I've, I've been going through and, and really like, I've really just been trying to have a contemplative period of time or space uh, in the midst of, of this pandemic. And it's led me to learn that there's a beauty between getting uh, my fingernails caked uh, with dirt and spending time working in the dirt. But it also continues to remind me that I also need to be able to find those kind of open-ended, messy times to spend with people. And as I begin mentioning Mike, Mike, Michael Iaconelli here, um, I, I got to go ahead and just begin with his words here, saying that spirituality is not about being fixed. It's about God's being present in the mess of your unfixedness. I'll say that again. Spirituality is not about being fixed. It's about God's being present in the mess of our unfixedness. I'm not one to ask for an amen, but I kind of feel like some of my Southern Baptist roots want to ask for that one there. Because I feel like this is something we all be, that we need to be hearing about on a regular basis and telling ourselves that the God, God being present in the mess of our unfixedness is spirituality. God loves to be in our mess with us, being messy. So the idea that we have everything fixed, everything nice, nicely neat and tidy, the idea that we can schedule God showing up at certain times at certain places on a Sunday morning to be able to be here and to be spiritual now, uh -huh, that's very neat. That doesn't ever happen. For me, at least, I'm not sure about you, through most of my life, I feel like God has met me in, in those unintentional spaces, in those cracks, in those conversations I didn't expect, God tends to surprise me in places and ways like that. And I wanted to share with you guys about one of those particular spaces I found myself in this past week. And oddly enough, when I bring up, when I bring up, when I bring up places um, where we are met by God, where we are fed spiritually, or places where we end up finding kind of that holy ground where we are walking, they don't always look like what we expect them to be. Mine uh, looked like a tattoo parlor in Carborough, North Carolina. This last week I found myself laying down 
for an hour and a half with my tattoo artist, Polly. I remember just staring at the ceiling, not really knowing what to expect, but spending what I would call some space on holy ground. The conversation that we had was one of the most life-giving and refreshing that I've had in a long time. And I have lots of conversations with people. I dig, I dig, try to dig in deep with lots of people when I have different talks, but this is one of those ones where I was surprised, I didn't expect it, and I felt like God was there. And I felt like that, that, that tattoo parlor was absolutely holy ground. And I was there, and my pastor or priest was not a man of the cloth. He was a man of the needle, <laughs> so to speak, the needle and ink. But, but you know sometimes in life when you end up having those just kind of interesting, deep conversations between two people that don't really know each other that well, but that somehow found this commonness of story. And then you proceed to talk to a stranger like you have been friends for years. And it's always a blessing when you end up finding those weird kindred spirits in places you don't expect. And, and finding those kindred spirits is part of that serendipity. I feel like it is part of that, that interesting, curious will of God. So I was not in a confessional booth. I was not on a <laughs> therapist's couch. But I was in a space that I feel was holy and sacred. And it was a reminder that I want to bring to all of us to be able to, to see God in these places that we don't expect. And, and it's really hard. Um, part of that conversation was talking about that it was really hard. Um, and I love talking about people who don't believe like I do, but we can find total commonality and total kinship. Um, in, in self and soul and outlook and, and in demeanor. But the way we are at in this world today, I, I feel like it, is, it, is, it becomes increasingly harder and harder to be able to see where is God moving today. And, and I think we want to be able to see God in, in the miracles. We want to be able to see God in the, the big successes. We want to be able to see God in the, oh, look at this person, what they've achieved. Only God could have helped them do that. But I think when we try to look at God in those in those big things, we we actually <laughs> we actually miss most of the work of God. And when you really look at headlines and you look out into the news today, it's really hard to be able to see where's God moving. <laughs> COVID deaths, ah, people being insane and not wearing masks and spitting on each other and doing all sorts of other insanity, craziness, uh, the chaos of governing uh, or of having Trump as president in America, I, it's really hard to see God in the midst of this. Like when I hear televangelists like Paula White lecture us about God being with Trump and everything else, and it, to me, to me, that just feels like it, it has nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with the reality of this world or the next. None of it makes sense part of anything. And, and we see people like this. We see all of these these slick freewheeling grifters in 
in the church, and they're held on pedestals and almost worshipped. But what if I'm going to tell you is that most of the time, you're not going to find God in those huge successes. You're going to find God in the small places, in the cracks, in the smallness of life. And, and that we too often, we too often miss out on it because I feel like that we're looking for the big things. And, and we do this every once in a while. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Here's what Stuart's going to do, something he doesn't always do. I'm going to actually just hop into some scripture because I wanted just to talk through some of this with you guys today. And, and, and I feel like it, it helps. Um, it helps just to re, reorient ourselves. And, and I'm hoping this conversation will help to hopefully reorient us a little bit as well too. Um, so this is coming from Luke 14. And uh, I'm just going to begin reading and then I will kind of commentary it as I go a bit, um, just to tell you. Uh, and when I mean I commentary it, some of it's Stuart commentary and other commentary that I've done and kind of... <laughs> okay, so you kind of get the idea. Okay, so we're, we're picking up the story here. Luke 14. On the Sabbath, Jesus went to eat in a house of a prominent Pharisee. He was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisee and the experts in law, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, pausing there. So again, for those of you that may not come from much of a uh, church or Bible background, Sabbath, holy day. Uh, traditionally through scripture, uh, the Sabbath they're talking about here uh, would be on a Saturday, even though now that modern day churches do this on a Sunday. But Jesus, Jesus was a man that was not well liked by the religious leaders of the time for the exact same re reasons that the religious leaders of this time uh, would probably also not like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we make fun of those religious leaders of our time, like we do in the Christian crazy, but just assume most of them are like these Pharisees and teachers of the law here. <laughs> okay? So we can take Christian crazies and put them here. So what Jesus is doing here, he's setting them up. He's at a dinner. He knows he's being watched because people don't like him and what he's doing and how he's challenging uh, really the rule of kind of religious law and how people read scripture and understand scripture and understand really who God is. So we ask him this, knowing the answer. This man, he's suffering. Is it lawful to heal him on the Sabbath? Knowing that, hey, we're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And then crickets. No one answers him. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. So then Jesus is like, nothing, nothing, nothing. All right, boop, you're healed, Okay. This is kind of the way God works. And then he pushes in and asks them this. If one of you has a child, or heck, I, I, there's sarcasm here. If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath, would you not immediately pull it out? Also, they had nothing to say. Because I love this. I, lo I love the way he's saying, would any of you had a child? Child, like generally... Most people love their children or have fond affection for them or some feeling, unless you're a Trump child, right? There's usually some sort of parent-child bond there. And Jesus is like, well, if that fell on the Sabbath, you'd still rescue them, right? You'd still do the work to rescue them. Oh, fine. Okay, let's say you don't even care about your kid. Maybe you're ox. That's what you care about. Wouldn't you rescue him? Again, silence. And when he, we're talking back to Jesus, going back to the scripture, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Parable, we're going to have a story that has a meaning. Ooh. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take a place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you has been invited. If so, 
The host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. He's essentially just talking about culture. Wedding, you want to be seen as the most important person in that culture based upon where, you're, you're, where you are sitting. And if you are sitting in a place of great importance and someone with more importance comes to you, simply put, the host will ask you to move, which is <laughs> what you don't want to happen, right? You don't want to be in the wrong chair at a wedding feast. Embarrassing. All right. All right. So, so when you are invited, he says, take the lowest place. So that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So simply put, Jesus is giving you this idea. This is kind of how the kingdom of God works right? Those who think they're amazing and think they're wonderful and only value themselves, they're going to be humbled. Those who are humbled and care about others, those people, those people have currency. Those people have status in my kingdom. Mm -hmm. Right. So then Jesus continues telling them this. And Jesus said to, the, to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they, although they cannot repay you, you'll be paid at the resurrection of the righteous. So what he's doing here is Jesus is laying out a very, very clear system for how the kingdom of God works. How the kingdom of God works. He pushes it further, moving down in the scripture telling them another story. So this is going down to verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come, for everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First uh, said, I've just bought a field. I got to go and see it. So eh, excuse me. Another said, I just bought five, five yoke of oxen. And I'm on my way to get them. Sorry. So another said, I just got married. I can't come. And the servant came back to the report and poured this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes compelled them to come in so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste at my banquet. So God is saying this. His table is not for the exalted. God cares about those that have been forgotten, those that are lowly. God cares about that. So th th this, is, this is a very, very, very key, key, key. <laughs> I, know, I know I try to boil down and make spirituality as simple as possible, right? Jesus says what's most important Love your neighbor and love God, right? So, very, so basically love other people, anyone, enemy, doesn't matter. Anyone that's not you, love them and also love God. But then Jesus is saying, this is how the kingdom of God works. God doesn't give people status. God cares about people's hearts. Okay. Very, very simple. Very, very simple. So track with me so far. Okay. I brought up earlier to you talking about my Kekanoi. 
And, and the simple way of him looking at scripture when I was in like my twenties really began to change the way I read scripture from then forward. Um, I, I remember him um, saying this, and I've got a quote here. And, and I feel like this fits very well within this parable. And he said this, nothing in the church makes people in the church more angry than grace. It's ironic. We stumble into a party we weren't invited to and find the uninvited standing at the door making sure no other uninviteds get in. And this strange phenomenon occurs. As soon as we are included in the party because of Jesus' irresponsible love, we decide to make grace more responsible by becoming self-appointed kingdom monitors, guarding the kingdom of God, keeping the riffraff out, which, as I understand it, are who the kingdom of God is supposed to include. He's mentioning this. The strangest phenomenon is the fact that the people that somehow are the gatekeepers for God in this world, those, those that, that prevent us from being able to learn about the Lord and hear about God and understand what God's kingdom looks like, somehow those gatekeepers feel like they know everything and they keep those that want to hear out. But the ironic part is they don't want to be inside either because this really, this mysterious word of grace is very problematic. It's incredibly problematic to the church. If we are called to live beautifully messy spiritual lives, that means we're called to love people, period. But what about, but what about, but what about if they do this? No, 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 no. We're called to love people. But what about when they did this or said this, or I saw this, or this person doesn't like that they did this? Ah, that's, that's all. That's fine. <laughs> but grace. Yeah, you're called to love them. But what? Nah, mm -mm. There's none of those anymore. There's none of those anymore in the kingdom of God. Everyone belongs. Everyone belongs. And the funny thing is, even what Jesus is saying in this parable, there's people that can be inside this party, that can be there, that can be in the presence of God. But they're too busy. What were they I just bought some ox over here. I got to go put some new hubcaps on them. I, you, I, I didn't even know this. I just got married. Crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I've got to go do this. No. Those a-holes, a.k.a. the people that should know better, the people that know scripture, the people that know grace, the people that should know the teachings of Jesus, they're the ones that keep the people out of the party. When the owner of the home is telling his servants, get anybody in here. This, the table's big enough. We have room. There's more, right? Everyone in the town's here? Really? Really? Everyone? Then go out to the roads. Come on, tell them. Seriously, free food, free food. I want everyone in here. Everyone matters. Everyone belongs. That's, that's, that's a huge narrative in the kingdom of God. And part of that narrative would also say that black lives matter. That until all lives matter, black lives matter. All lives 
must matter. And part of us being able to be able to wrestle with that grace should also give us the grace to realize that we are messy. I see messy people every day, but I really need to see the most messy person every day when I look in the mirror. And I should realize that I'm a work in progress and other people are work in progress. And I don't know what their story is until I hear their story, until I walk some with them along with their story. I don't really have much room to say anything. I messed up. You're messed up. Hey, let's just not be a-holes to each other and try to make the world a better place. Bubbing, kingdom of God. It's almost that simple. <laughs> Actually, it's almost that simple because it is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. This is going to be fairly probably heretical. And now I'm saying this. But let's, let's just go ahead and boil down. Let's boil down the Bible into its most simple and, yeah, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's most simple terms, okay? So we're going to kind of go like for like tent pegs here. We're going for like the, the high points, high points, main ideas, main ideas, right? If we had a word cloud, be a bunch of these things. I hate word clouds. Sorry. <laughs> God created the universe and said it was good and beautiful. God created humankind in God's own image, which is also very good. And then we see Jesus enters this place because God so loved the world. Yeah, that's Christianity 101. So, Goodness and lovingness and us being able to teach other people <laughs> how to love others, how to love themselves, and how grace matters. Because we are all messy. We are all messed up. We don't have it all figured out. And the reason I get mad at folks within the Christian crazy, and we mock them. I do. I do. I do. It's part of my snarky spiritual gift do that because they preach a gospel of certainty. They preach a gospel of exclusion. They preach a gospel that doesn't say, ah, God's already, oh, fine. Wait, reservation? What do you mean? You've always had a reservation. Get in here. What do you mean if you're on the list? You've always been on the list. Why are you not in here? Free food, dude. Come on in. God's table's big. And there's been too many gatekeepers. There's been too many people telling us stories that are lies, that we're not worth it, that we don't belong here, that we shouldn't be here, that we've done X, Y, and Z, and because of X, Y, and Z, we should never sit here. Maybe we look a certain way, we talk a certain way, we don't have a certain status or have enough money. There's a lot of lies out there that tell us we don't belong at that table, but really, Jesus is very clear. Hey, you're part of God's creation. God created you in, in God's image. And you have a seat at the table. You have dignity. You're loved. You matter. And I'm sorry so much to everyone out there that they don't hear this regularly in churches. That God wants you to know that you are loved and that we are in places we know that we are loved and accepted and we have grace. Those are places where we can grow and help others grow and get better and begin to mend ourselves, help others mend themselves help mend the world around us. I know it sounds utopia. I've preached this before. I literally preached the beginning of Acts and had someone come up and say, it's great, sounds wonderful. 
What are we all supposed to be a bunch of hippies? It's a very small way of thinking about it. But it was also a very dismissive way that people do to keep themselves safe and insulated from actually the teachings of Jesus. Because the teachings of Jesus are simply too hard for most people that go to churches. But not you. I think you out there, you can understand this. I think you can understand that you matter. You can understand no matter whatever anyone has told you, you matter. That you have a purpose. You can help other people matter too. That's just this weird grace thing that happens. God loves you. Not when you fix yourself. God loves you now. Like, actually, yesterday. Wait, before yesterday. Even before you did that thing. Even knowing that you were going to do that thing and you still did the thing. and whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, see what I'm getting at here? And see the idea that we need to go and do likewise to others? To go and help others, love others, give people back their dignity? <laughs> so foolish. So, But that's really... Why do we make theology so complicated? We do, because when we start making theology complicated, it means we start talking about it. And the more we talk about it and write books about it and uh, write commentary about it and have sermons about it, means guess what? We're not doing it. We're just talking about doing it. Ah, then it allows us to be critics or like history buffs. That's my hobby. When the thing that, that's, that blows my mind the most, and I know that I've said this several times <laughs> over this pandemic, this should have been the time for the American church to shine. Instead, Christians are whining about wearing masks. I can't breathe. <laughs> I'm so privileged. A mask is over my face. I can't breathe. Where well, there's people that really are dying because they can't breathe. I need to have my worship or I'm going to die. Selfish, selfish, selfish. Little babies. I'm nothing to do with Jesus. So folks in the church piss you off. Guess what? They piss off Jesus too. He messed with them in parties like we talked about here in Luke to get a rise out of them, hopefully to be able to see that they are a bunch of idiots. Didn't work. They still killed him. But, but, end of the story is this. You matter. You matter exactly where you are at. And that I am also trying to figure it out. And if you want to try to figure out things with me and some other folks, let's do this. Because I would rather try to build stuff uh, out of love and grace than be a part of judgment and whatever the BS the church industrial complex has made itself into in this time that is somehow dying <laughs> because you can't open a door in a building. That's just ridiculous. Church of God should live with or without a building. The kingdom of God is way bigger than that. And when you see pastors losing their minds about it, just tell yourself that because they don't, that's because they don't know what the church is. Because they don't. So as I end this broadcast, just a reminder that you can catch a show and past shows uh, on podcasts at www.snarkyfaith.com or anywhere or anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, you can also Go over to our website if you want to get this sent to you in your email every week. And, hey, if anyone's wanting to chit-chat, talk, reach out, tell me I'm crazy, tell me I'm great, tell me something interesting, <laughs> give me some Christian crazy, I don't care. I love it. Send me stuff here, and I answer everything personally. Questions at snarkyfaith.com. But that is all I have this hour. And I send you out 
to embrace your beautiful messiness. Because you're not where you need to be. I'm not where I need to be. But hey, let's go and get there together. We are better together than we are apart. So I send you out to change this world with the holiest amount of grace and snark and peace. I'm out of here. We'll catch you guys again next week. Show's over. Why are you still here? Like, seriously, it's a little bit weird. I finished it up. Production's done. And I'm done. Like, I need to get out of here, turn off the lights, and lock up. Why? Okay, fine, fine. You want more? You want more? Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll call this bonus content. <laughs> For those that snuck around and hung out at the end, you get one extra little bonus story. And all I'll tell you right now, if anyone wants to ask me individually about this, I'll maybe tell the story more on the air later. But I talked about Mike Iaconale. And um, one of my first instances to him was one of his, uh, I think a lot of these came from his like blog posts um, or articles that he wrote. And one of these is so beautiful and it's called Getting Fired for the Glory of God. And I will tell you, it works. I was a youth pastor at a large church at the time yeah, it works. Just going to go ahead and tell you. Follow these rules and they work, but this is beautiful. And and I love these because in many ways, they are an affront to kind of the institutional church about how church has forgotten what it's meant to be and like forgotten Jesus in the process. But um, it also, I think, is just good in a certain place for us to be able to use for our own selves to be able to remember what really matters and how we can stay balanced. Okay. He had this, the, the top, yeah, getting fired for the glory of God. And these are like the, I think they're top ten. No, seven, seven, seven. Oh, it's holy, of course. These are like the seven ways to get fired for the glory of God. So um, in a ministry job, number one, keep Jesus number one, he says. Make your relationship with Jesus the first priority in your life and expect the same of your church staff. Suggest that the staff meetings uh, allow only discussion about everyone's relationship with Jesus, forgetting the business. Just pray together and share your struggles with each other. I know he's being snarky with this, but the idea of keeping Jesus number one and being in a ministry staff, I feel like most churches I've worked for would agree with that in principle, but in practice, uh-uh. Moving to number two, be still. Require as part of your job description paid time alone with God. Uh, at least one day a week of silence, three days, three-day retreats every quarter, and one week every year for the entire staff. Now, again, this is ridiculous. But this idea of, of being still has become something that I need. I know that I, I am my better self when I am my collected self. I am uh, better grounded with God when I've had time to contemplate and reflect. So yes. Keeping Jesus, number one, learning to be still. Okay, number three, this is a good one too. Ignore corporate values. Refers to accept corporate values uh, for evaluating your worth. And are, what are those corporate secular humanist values? Uh, so these are the values that we don't want to be able to put over our 
our spiritual life, our path, and whatever our success is. Size, productivity, efficiency, speed, technology, busyness, measuring, balance, power, success, good grades, sports, etc. He says, instead, these are the things that we should do. Move to number four. Think small. He calls the churches and groups that we run should never be larger than one that we can handle with integrity. Be real. Number five, tell the truth. Tell people what you're doubting, struggling, hurting, and failing. Create an atmosphere of reality. Refuse to edit meetings so that they're polished communicator speeches and only the positive stories get told. I think that also one of the things that we've forgotten in the church is how, for, is how that we are called to be real. We're called to be real. Life is messy. Messiness happens. I've seen too many churches uh, ruined, broken apart, or just really just damage people from the fact that leadership was not willing to be real. Leadership was not willing to be human in this. And leadership only cared about keeping things nice and neat and tidy, which usually means pushing people out the back door. So think small, be real. Number six, put your family first. Don't let a workaholic staff intimidate you into being a workaholic. Say yes to your family first. Honestly, when you're on staff, and this, this may sound crazy. Like, I, first of all, I, I've, I've never been less than a workaholic at any place I've ever worked at. So again, I, prioritizing things is very helpful. But at the end of the day, your family and the people that give life to you matter. Whether you're working in church or not, wherever you're at in your job place and everything else, people matter. People matter. And then he put this one as seek kingdom values. And here are the kingdom values he laid out was time. Have extra time to spend with people one-on-one and refuse to be too busy. Be aware, be sensitive, be empathetic, and notice things. Be audacious, risk, be courageous, be resistant. Have intimacy with God. Humility matters and grace. And he puts this in the end. Notice, you don't have to confront the system. You can just get close to Jesus, seek intimacy with God, follow kingdom values, and it won't be long until you're out in the street. And guess what? Who'll be there with you? You got it, Jesus. So there, for those of you brown nosers that stayed around till the end, you got a little story time. So really, this is it. I'm really going to pull the plug now. I'm honestly going to do it. Really, really, really right now. Like, I'm really serious. All right. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks for being a part of this, and I'll catch you guys again next week. Peace, part two. I'm out.